Alrighty, everyone, welcome back. This is Tavis Killian and Kevin Olson bringing you the latest and greatest news in the episode of Basin Breakdown, covering everything from June of 2022. If you're new, we go through the biggest stories in some of the major basins located in the United States. And if you've been here before, welcome back. I suppose we should probably just kick it off like we always do. You got anything else to add, Kevin? I do not. Let's get into this. <laughs> All right. First, like usual, we start right here in Colorado with the DJ and Niall Brower Basins, where we've got two new commissioners. The five-member regulatory panel of the COGCC is saying goodbye to two commissioners. Ecologist Priya Nanjapa resigned three months early to become the vice president of a conservation program with the National Parks Conservative Association. Bill Gonzalez saw his full two-year term through to the end of June. Gonzalez was asked if he would like to take the seat in 2020 as it was reserved for a commissioner with professional industry experience. Now it will be going to Mike Cross of Arvada, who has a long career in oil and gas law. And uh, I know we've talked about this before. It seems strange that only one of the commissioners in the COGCC needs some type of industry experience. I'd love to see a second seat with someone with field experience who has the context to really judge whether there's an infraction or just a simple misunderstanding. But that's about where I stand on it. No, I agree with you, Tavis. I think it's bizarre that I, these people that are making decisions on oil and gas policy here within our state don't really know anything about the oil and gas industry. To me, it's kind of like, oh, you know, we just hired a, you know, a new boss, but he's never even worked in oil and gas. Like, what? How is he supposed to be in charge? Yeah, maybe he has C-suite experience, but it's still, it lacks the context. But that's neither here nor there. What do we got next? Well, speaking of the COGCC, Enforcement Officer Kelly Rosenberg said, quote, Staff feels it is in everybody's best interest if Lasso and 31 operating simply stop operating and allow the state to manage their wells. The expectation is that all the remaining wells will be placed on the orphan well list, end quote. This will supplement the initial proposed fine of $2.2 million. While the two companies are separate, they are based out of the same Texas address and represented by the same individual. These companies were accused of 19 different violations of state regulations, ranging from flaring infractions, inadequate secondary containment, and failure to submit records. And this one's kind of weird because uh, they levied a $2.2 million fine, said if you don't clean this up, you're going to get it. And it sounds like nothing was really taken care of. While these infractions do look pretty minor and easily remedied, nothing happened. But even Commissioner Messner, he was saying, oh, it gives me heartburn. This feels like a get-out-of-jail-free card. I'm more concerned with the fact that they now have, I believe, 106 wells that they're taking over and putting on a list to just abandon, which seems strange. Well, yeah, it seems like, okay, you know, we were supposed to, you know, fine these guys $2.2 million, and instead they're just like, you know what, we'll take care of this. You guys can go walk away. It doesn't seem like a great use of state resources because these individuals should be the way they're still operating. It's not like they don't exist anymore. Why are they getting put on orphan well list and taking funds away from, you know, orphan, orphan wells that the operators don't exist anymore? And we really need right. to clean this stuff up. Maybe wells that aren't producing. Absolutely. So seems a little odd to me, but enough right. of that. If we're going to stick with the COGCC theme, we've got another article from them. This one with KPK. Ongoing litigation between the COGCC and KPK has been extended by six more months. Last November, the commission identified 74 sites that required attention and levied a $2 million fine against the company. The recent hearing determined that their progress was inadequate, and the COGCC would defer all but $795,000, which is going to be paid back over a five-year period. 
KPK argues that these fines are diverting their resources to penalties rather than being deployed to fix the sites as they've already spent $1.7 million on remediation since the last hearing. Quote, if you can't afford to pay the fines, then live within the rules, end quote, Commissioner Bill Gonzalez said. Quote, compliance with the rules is the baseline. We are not handing out the most improved trophies here, end quote. You know, in, in this one is what I struggle with because here's a company that's actively trying to fix and remedy the situation, but they're still getting fined. So I, I really do see both sides of the coin here because A, you know, you messed up, you should be fined opposite side of the coin they're actively trying to fix their mistake and if they don't have the funds to do both you know it, it kind of becomes a situation of well which is more important and to me i would say that actually remedying the situation is more important you know maybe they should be allowed to you know push off these fines to you know as you're starting to cash flow again you know after you've cleaned up all these mistakes now you can start paying the fine back so i really do struggle with this story because i do see both sides. Yeah, there's certainly a compromise to be found here, but really the two biggest issues, I went ahead and watched the trials myself over a two-day period, didn't catch the final day with this uh, decision, but it seemed that, one, the COGCC was accusing them of things that KPK felt was not technically their fault, not within their control, and that they were being unfairly punished for some of the cases. They did agree some of the cases needed to be remediated, needed to be solved, but then again, it's it's tough to measure progress. It's a very qualitative thing. I mean, they are putting their best effort forward, but it's just not enough. So I guess we'll see what happens. I think that wraps up all the news we've got for Colorado, though. So let's take it up to the Powder River Basin, where the VP of the Petroleum Association of Wyoming has some responses. The Biden administration letter to the industry was met with mixed emotions, but Ryan McConaughey was not pleased. The vice president of the Petroleum Association of Wyoming was quick to point out that oil and gas companies are not setting the price, but rather policy has restricted meaningful production and processing. He rebuked Biden's accusations of refineries gouging Americans by processing less. Quote, nationwide refining capacity is something like 93%. So when you're running that high at utilization, that is a weak argument, he said. They are operating now at about as close to the max as you can get. Last we saw for our region, Colorado, Wyoming, and Utah, we were running almost 99% capacity, end quote. This is just one of many individuals who posted public responses to the presidential letter. And this doesn't even begin to consider the amount of refining capacity loss. I mean, just in the past, uh, we'll say since the pandemic started, about a million barrels of processing or refining capacity has been lost. 600 of that is to refineries that have been re-kitted to process biodiesel and then the other ones were just natural disasters or companies that struggled to operate at a profit through the pandemic so i can see the frustration here like we said this is one of the many responses to the letter i'm sure you've read mike worth's response uh plenty of people had things to say but this was just another one in the mix to say hey man maybe that's not what's going on next in wyoming the epa changes stance on good neighbor policies according to the environmental protection According to the Environmental Protection Agency, states that contribute more than 1% of the chemicals that make up downwind states' ground ozone may soon be subject to federal emissions limitations, known as the good neighbor policy. Now, quick side note, if you don't know what ground ozone is, that's basically any chemical that's going to contribute to some catalyzation that uh, releases chemicals that damage the ozone layer of the atmosphere. So think physical substances that are on the ground or in the soil. 
Wyoming only had Colorado listed as a downwind state, despite general wind directions leading more to Kansas and Nebraska than the polluted skies of Denver. Even the Petroleum Association of Wyoming recognized the absurdity in the EPA enforcing the same emission laws between Wyoming and California when Cali's winds send 42 times more smog ingredients to the other states than Wyoming. The EPA found it inappropriate to impose good neighbor emission policies in 2015, but it seems the new administration has different plans. I gotta say, this is totally wacky. Interstate wind pollution transfer? I mean, definitely something to be aware of, but this if the winds don't even go that way, why is that rule being made? Yeah, I agree. This It, it, it seems to me that it's so obvious that maybe it's not obvious. Does that make sense? <laughs> like, oh, okay, the winds aren't even going that direction. We know where they're actually going. Why is this being enforced? This doesn't make any sense, you know? So... I don't really think I agree with what the EPA is, <laughs> this is time doing here. Yeah. Far, yeah. <laughs> but while we're on the topic of wind, let's sweep it down to the scoop stack where lagging regulations have upset environmentalists. While federal methane regulations are still on the drafting board for the EPA, environmentalists want action in Oklahoma. While companies like Devon Energy self-regulate and establish emission reduction goals, other small operators in the state and tribal lands are less concerned. The Environmental Defense Fund took drone footage over several Oklahoma sites showing tank batteries and flow lines allowing methane to escape to the atmosphere. Whether or not Oklahoma prioritizes regulation around methane emissions, the EPA released a proposal in the fall in hopes to impose these regulations by the end of the summer. I mean, at this point, if you're not regulating your own emissions, you're painting a big old target on your back for the feds to come after you. That or, I guess, state legislators, should they introduce some sort of rule. Yeah, absolutely. And this is just something that it seems so real. Come on, guys. Like, let's fix this. This is an open tank battery, a leaking flow line. You know, this isn't just harming the environment. It's harming your production goals, too. Like, And wasting free energy that we could be using as natural gas. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think that these regulations are probably going to be a little bit more stringent than they need to be. But... The fact that drone footage can already spot these, there's an issue down in Oklahoma that I think needs addressing. Next, this uh, this has got to be just the goofiest article we've ever looked at on the Basin Breakdown, but I could not believe the story as I read it, and it got weirder and weirder, so I'm tossing it in as news here. A man was arrested for climbing Devon Tower. In mid-June, a man self-dubbed as the pro-life Spider-Man scaled the Devon Energy headquarters with nothing but a bag of chalk and some shoes. He was accompanied by a drone pilot filming his ascent, who he had just met the day before. <laughs> Police used handwritten notes to communicate with the man through windows as they directed him towards the safest ascent. Once the man reached the roof of the skyscraper, he was taken into custody and arrested. The man claims to climb buildings illegally to raise awareness surrounding pro-life issues. Poor Devin energy caught in the middle of this. Some fanatic climbing the just outside of the building. caught in the crosshairs. Yeah. Oh, the news footage is crazy. He's just kind of sitting up there, dipping his hands into the bag of chalk, dusting off. Again, doesn't have anything to do with energy, but I'm like, ah, I got to toss it's, this it's in fun. there. It's it was fun. a slow month for Oklahoma, so I'll take it to a real article now. A new job posting from Chesapeake Energy reveals that the company may be interested in getting a slice of that LNG export pie. The LNG advisor position will be leading new business opportunities for Chesapeake and guide executives on LNG marketing activities. This comes after the announcement in March revealing that the company aims to take a greater role in LNG exports. Chesapeake even participated in a conference that brought American companies face-to-face -face with European nations hoping to wean their countries off Russian gas. And hey, I think they recognize an opportunity, LNG export, and trying to get their foot in the door. 
I think it's interesting that it's coming, all this is coming from a job posting. You would think that, you know, some kind of marketing team would be like, all right, you know, let's post a story or, um, you know, create some kind of video to, to get this out there. But, um, it, just a LinkedIn job post. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah. We're going to get into the LNG game. Like, oh, okay. Pretty mm-hmm. cool. But, um, kind of like you said, why not? I mean, it, it's such, it's really, especially, you know, in areas like this, it's an untapped market and it seems like, you know, if there's experts out there, let's bring them yeah. in-house and, and kind of like you said, get a slice of that LNG pie. But that is everything we've got for Oklahoma, scoop stack regions. Next, we're going to take it to the Permian, taking it to where everything is bigger in Texas, including sand prices. The deserts of the Permian are struggling to source sand necessary for frack operations. At the end of 2021, frack sand was at a high of $22 per ton. Now it averages 55 There have been delays, manpower shortages, and trucking bottlenecks for sand providers. The largest publicly traded producer of frack sand, U.S. Silica Holdings Incorporated, has sold out, and its CEO has termed the competitive market sandemonium. Steve Brock and his fledgling sand mining company, Nomad Profit LLC, step in at that point. Fracking operators have relied on mine sand that is trucked to their locations across lengths of up to 100 miles since the beginning of the shale revolution more than 10 years ago. Brock, the chief commercial officer of Nomad, wants to alter that paradigm. Nomad has created equipment that can travel straight to the frack wells, greatly decreasing the burden of freight expenses and the time-consuming trucking process. Quote, We're not brain surgeons here. All we're doing is finding the best spots and washing and delivering the sand. End quote, said Brock. Quote, Frankly, that it took us this long to get here is pretty wild. End quote. I love this idea. I mean, there's definitely parts of the Permian that are just big enough and probably have the right sand to sort through and clean where you can get the propens that you need. So I'm pretty excited to see what happens with this. I am too, but I love that last line. Frankly, it took us, it's like the fact that it took you that long to get there. I mean, but kind of uh, the mentality I would assume here, it's like, you know, this is the process that's been in place. This is how we've always sourced our sand. This is, and it's always, you know, just never really taken a second look. But now that prices are up 150% in the past six months, it leads to, mm, how can we do this, you know, more efficiently? How can we do this cheaper? So I think this is fantastic. I think this is a great story, mm-hmm. you know, really ingenuitive, if you will. Um, and we'll we'll see where this goes down the road. But let's talk about new regulations that are hampering drilling in the Permian. The EPA is considering a new label for select areas of the Permian Basin that may discourage or impede oil and gas extraction there. The EPA might declare that some areas of the Permian Basin are in violation of the federal ozone air quality requirements, according to a regulatory notice. State regulators would have three years to come up with a plan to improve the air quality if the EPA did in fact declare some components to be in violation of that criteria. Their strategies can include preventing the construction of new industrial facilities from making the air quality even worse and ensuring that the equipment is in place that existing sites to maintain the air quality at acceptable levels. Quote, creating uncertainty on permitting and inserting unnecessary regulatory barriers will only negatively impact the production necessary to meet the needs of the consumers. End quote. Todd Staples, the president of Texas Oil and Gas Association, told Bloomberg. And at this point, I might add, we have considered a whole bunch of news regarding the EPA this month. Last month, uh, this is bigger than any basin. It was across the United States. I believe the Supreme Court checked some of the powers that the EPAs had and said, well, 
we love what you're doing, but from now on, you got to run this through Congress. You can't make these big sweeping changes. So I imagine that's going to affect a lot of this. A lot of this news did come out before that decision, but uh, it's just how it goes. Regulatory bodies and operators, there's going to be that push and shove, that tug of war until that compromise is reached. And and the unfortunate thing is, and Todd Staples kind of hit the nail on the head there, it is, it's going to negatively impact, well, could potentially negatively impact production in these areas. And it's production that, you know, really needs to start ramping up. You know, just we're at the point in time now where, you know, demand is outpacing supply. And, you know, if you throw a wrench into things, making that gap even wider, we're going to have to start having some energy issues on our hands. But that wraps up the Permian. We're going to take it over to the Eagleford, one of our favorites, our best, biggest, baddest underdog down there. And unfortunately, things were a little slow in that region this month. Most of the news centering around acquisitions, mergers, and the like. According to those with knowledge of the matter, the owners of Laredo Energy 6 LP, a gas driller with focus on the Eagleford sale in South Texas, are thinking about selling the business for up to $1 billion. Just north of the Mexican border in an area of the Eagleford known as the Dry Gas Window, Laredo leases 70,000 acres. The main output of the wells there is unprocessed natural gas with little to no liquid hydrocarbons. According to the persons who asked not to be identified because they lacked official permission to talk publicly, the company is collaborating with an advisor to conduct an auction process for the assets and has made its data room available to interested suitors. So, I don't know. Maybe this is a function of, oh, commodity prices are up. We can make the most money out of this and get it off our hands. I don't really know what to expect from this. Yeah, well, and... The thing that I think is interesting is they're opening up their data room to suited, like, um, to invested suit. So that to me means we're an open book. You know, you can see, look at our production history, look at our book. I think that without even, you know, knowing, you know, the business side and looking at their actual numbers, I can already tell that this to me seems like a good deal because if this company is willing and open to say, yeah, come check it out. We have nothing to hide. I can already tell you that they've probably got a pretty good business model. That or they're waiting for a couple of suckers to come in. <laughs> yeah, you know. But speaking of acquisitions, the borrowing base for Ranger Oil Corporation's revolving credit facility has been raised by 20% to $875 million. The $400 million elective commitment made by Ranger to its plant is still in effect. This is the second increase that has been announced this year, bringing the total up to over 45%. Darren Hank, president and CEO, said, quote, Ranger sits in an enviable position today with a strong capital structure, deep inventory of high return opportunities, significant free cash flow, and ample liquidity to execute our business plan through cycle. This combination was recognized by our banking syndicate partners as well as S&P Global with their upgrade on our company credit rankings to a B stable outlook. Due to the expected acceleration in second half production and growing free cash flow, we elected to keep our credit facility commitment to $400 million. Ranger's increased borrowing base provides meaningful scale and financial flexibility as we continue to elevate accretive consolidation opportunities add to our core Eagleford position, end quote. I love this. This to me is news of, hey, we're feeling good. We're feeling good enough to borrow more money and keep ourselves open to any opportunities that come down the road. Yeah, I mean, and the thing that I think is important here is, you know, accelerated free cash flow. They think that things are going to continue to get better down the road. And so why not? Why not continue to grow and, and build so this is great news to see in the Eagleford and uh, all power to Ranger. But that wraps up everything for both of those Texas basins. Next, we're going to take it to the grand old state of California to see what's going on there. 
Governor Gavin Newsom and Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau launched a new cooperation to pursue ambitious climate action. Building on California's global leadership on climate issues and continuing the partnerships established with other countries. In order to combat climate change, lessen pollution, reduce plastic waste, advance zero-emission vehicles, safeguard the environment, and increase climate resilience, California and Canada signed a Memorandum of Cooperation. This expands Canada's environmental partnerships that now exist between California, New Zealand, Japan, and China. To me, this is odd. It's just a political stunt. Yeah. There's no specifics. It's just, ah, we'll, we'll work it out. Yeah, well, and it's also like, why is a state dealing with an entire country? Like, uh, I mean, to be fair, it L.A. is almost like its own state. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I mean, you have a, a very valid point there, but I kind of like you said, I think this is just some political stunt to, you know, show Make everyone. look a little bit better. Yeah, like, oh, you know, we're really committed to the environment here. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, what are you actually going to do? That's what I want to see. I want to see concrete action, not just, you know, a press conference of look at us shaking hands and being buddies. Don't you know just at least talking about it is all you have to do anymore to get the positive rep for it? You're right. Sorry. My (laughs) bad, Tavis. But let's talk about Kern County and how they're in a little bit of hot water right now. Kern County's environmental review of its 2021 oil and gas code was found to have violated the state's fundamental environmental protection legislation by neglecting to address substantial environmental impacts according to a key judgment from the Kern County Superior Court. In examining the mitigating and consequences of oil and gas production on agricultural land, air quality, and water supply, particularly for disadvantaged populations, the county did not adhere to the minimal requirements outlined by CEQA. And this is something we've kind of been talking about in the past. Caljum says, hey, Kern County, you are the mecca of oil and gas in the state. You guys seem to know what you're doing. We'll try and forge you a bit of self-regulation, to which environmental groups so whoa, whoa, whoa. No, that's just you guys trying to dodge doing your job. From what I've seen, Caljum has a lot on its plate. It's got plenty enough to do just regulating the oil and gas in L.A. I hope Kern County can afford some autonomy, but I think it's going to be a lengthy battle to get to that point. Absolutely. And and the thing that's kind of unfortunate is, you know, in, in my view, I think Kern County should be setting the gold standard for how operators need to be operating in the state. Because, you know, if Kern County just starts, you know, skirting the rules and, and causing environmental issues. What's to say that, you know, California, a state that this is a really hot topic, isn't just like, you know what, we're done with oil and gas. And so <laughs> Kern County, if it wants to save its own neck, I think needs to start becoming that gold standard. But something California forgets is that it's not all bad. In the Marcellus, we've got a story about royalty payments in 2021, getting back to the people to the tune of $123 million. According to spokesman George Stark, Cotera Energy, which was created via the union of Cabot Oil and Gas Corporation and Cimerex Energy Corporation, paid $2 billion in royalties in Susquehanna County alone between 2010 and 2021. (laughs) According to the Public Utility Commission, the industry will pay counties and municipalities impacted by drilling $123,217,163 in impact fees for the 2021 reporting year. With the distribution for this year, localities will have gotten more than $2.2 billion since 2010. Although consumers are technically paying a higher price for natural gas, the return funds do wonders for the local economies. So this is one of those feel-good stories, right? It's easy to go, ah, big oil, he's bad, he's evil. But for a little bit more on the natural gas price, a lot of communities, a lot of groups are receiving funding that they couldn't have even dreamed of getting before. Absolutely. (laughs) 
one of the things I think is really interesting about this story is how specific that number is. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> someone's running the numbers, right? Why and $163? Like, I'm surprised they didn't get down to cents. Okay, you know that's a good point. I just figured you know you'd round to the you know the nearest five or ten million. But, <laughs> but let's talk about conventional and unconventional being held to the same standards. This is a thing that we've started to talk about, and it's continuing to be a pressing issue here in the Marcellus. Following opposition from lawmakers and those who support Pennsylvania's conventional oil and gas industry, environmental regulators in the state are only moving forward with half of the long-overdue regulation intended to reduce air pollution from oil and gas well sites. The State Environmental Equality Board voted to pass a rule that exclusively addresses air pollution from shale gas or unconventional well sites and associated machinery. The pollution reduction benefit has been anticipated when the rule encompassed both the state's shale and conventional well site infrastructure, and it was lost under the new rule by almost 80%. The organization is working quickly to save the regulation in order to avoid penalties from the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, which may jeopardize billions of dollars in federal highway funding. And again, the EPA, they see, ooh, the potential to reduce emissions by 80 percent. Well, yeah, if we hold conventional sites to the same standards we do unconventional, which got everyone's panties in a wad. So this has been working out for quite some time, and it looks like we're finally getting to the end of it. I'm glad that unconventional and conventional are being evaluated on different bases. We do have protections for both, but it's kind of hard to blanket cover both of those things when one's a vertical well that goes, you know, 2,000 feet into the ground and the other one's a two-mile horizontal frack. Yeah, is and, and I do completely agree that there needs to be standards for both, but the fact that you're just putting one umbrella over the two, it just doesn't make sense. And to wrap it up for the Marcellus, we've got some membrane distillation deployment, a cool new technology. By cleaning the produced water for reuse, engineers from the University of Pittsburgh Swanson School of Engineering are creating a novel method that is already being tried in Pennsylvania, Texas, and North Dakota to lessen the environmental impact of drilling and fracking. A new method that can handle complex and heavily contaminated wastewater is membrane distillation. Through the use of membrane distillation technology, this project, led by Radisov Vidic, professor and department chair of civil and environmental engineering, allows drillers to filter and reuse produced water for use in the oil and gas sector, in agriculture, and for other advantageous purposes. Theoretically, producers could reduce operating expenses by utilizing waste heat to provide the technology's thermal energy needs. The use of this technique will save the state's northeastern counties, which are the furthest from disposal wells, nearly $16 million annually in disposal expenditures. I think this is so cool. It's so sick, dude. Are you kidding me? Using uh, gas that would have just been floating out to the atmosphere to power a technology that turns a liability into a sellable asset? That's huge. Ooh-wee. Yeah, this is incredible. And and it's already being used in Pennsylvania, Texas, and North Dakota, but where I think that this could really be beneficial is a place like Kern County down in California. Agriculture. Exactly. That's the biggest use of water down in California. And when they're really struggling with sourcing water and, you know, farmers aren't getting enough water. Okay, how about we use the water that we're already getting from the oil and gas industry and, you know, having to ship it off and basically deal with it. Kind of like you said, it's now becoming an asset. It's going to, you know, you can sell that water. I think this is just absolutely an incredible technology. And I'm really hoping that this can be further developed and expanded um, as the year progresses. Let's just hope they don't do the same thing we did back in, what was it, 1940, where L.A. sucked too much water out of the ground and the whole city fell. Yeah, you know. Don't get too greedy, everybody. <laughs> but 
how about we take it on over to the Williston Basin? We used to call this the Bakken, but we're going to change up the name for you a little bit. Where let's talk about new production data highlighting storm damage. Two back-to-back -back blizzards shut down lots of North Dakota energy infrastructure as some operators lost 45 to 100% of their production due to storm damage. This correlates to some 900,000 barrels per day back in April. The monthly data has now been aggregated, revealing a 20% month-over-month production drop. This is the second largest drop, only beaten by the 30% decline from April to May in 2020, as markets responded to COVID. Even natural gas output slumped some 19%. By the 1st of June, things were back to normal. Now, this was a story we looked at initially when those storms broke out, and I think all we had was, oh, some operators lost all of their production capacity. But now that we've got this data, 20% month-over-month drop. I mean, they were over, I think, a million barrels per day, but, yeah, dropped to less. Yeah, that's Far insane. less. I mean, some 900,000 barrels per day in April. That's brutal. That's per day. That's not just in the month of April. That's what we lost. So, um, really, it's it's great to when you can finally have concrete data so we can see, wow, like, look at the impact of, you know, just a small storm, we thought. But, no, this was a huge impact to these operators in the area. Lastly, to round out this podcast, North Dakota's first soybean processing unit is soon to be functional. The first dedicated soybean processing facility in North Dakota, which will allow the annual production of around 75 million gallons of sustainable diesel, has been officially opened by U.S.-based Marathon Petroleum. The joint venture between ADM and Marathon will manufacture around 600 million pounds of vegetable oil annually, with production set to begin at the Green Bison Manufacturing Facility in Spiritwood in 2023. Quote, the Green Bison Soy Processing Facility represents another step in Marathon Petroleum's commitment to investing in a sustainable, energy-diverse future, says Dave Hepner, Marathon Petroleum Senior Vice President of Strategy and Business Development. And to me, that statement doesn't say securing green energy, anything like that. It just says maintaining commitments. So I feel like they kind of know that, especially with Sri Lanka collapsing and the grain shortage and energy shortages, this may not be the best venture for them. No, but I, and I think what's important here is that the the end of that quote, though, an energy diverse future, because they realize that, you know, there's going to be a transition here. There's going to be, you know, a need for biodiesel. There's going to be a need for things. And they don't want to just pigeon pigeonhole themselves into just being, you know, an oil and gas producer. It's like, hey, how can we make sure that we can provide the energy that the world's going to need? All right, here's one way to do things. But kind of like you said, Maybe not necessarily sustainable, maybe not the best business choice, but I think it proves to uh, really everyone that they kind of have their head screwed on right. And look, we, we know that there's going to be some kind of transition in the future. We want to stay up with the times with that. But like we said, that is the end of the articles for the now Williston, almost said Bakken. I'm not even used to it yet. And the end of the podcast. If you'd like to learn more, we've got Monday Madness, which gets you caught up on all the facts of the matters on news, global events. And we've also recently been doing a wacky world of energy where Anthony and myself, uh, I'm not going to say give unhinged, but definitely unfiltered opinions on some of the <laughs> stuff going on in energy. So keep an eye out for that. Go ahead and frack the follow button on whatever podcast platform you listen through, or just simply follow us on LinkedIn, where you'll be notified of content that we are releasing almost daily. This has been Tavis Killian and Kevin Olson with Rare Petro. Until we see you next time, take care, everybody. 